Let's go ahead and get into uh, Revelation chapter 3, where, again, we've been looking at these seven churches. This morning we're going to be looking at the church of Philadelphia. The church at Philadelphia. And so let's read verses 7 through 13, and then we'll actually get into it. So everybody open to Revelation chapter 3. Jesus, again, writing this letter, and he dictates it to John. And John would be delivering it to the different churches. He says this to the church at Philadelphia. And to the angel or the pastor or the messenger of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. Actually, let me back up to verse 8. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. And he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. And so, as we look at this church, it's kind of comforting to know. If you remember last week, we looked at the church of Sardis, which was really labeled the dead church. And now we're looking at the church at Philadelphia, which is a faithful church. And uh, next week, we'll be looking at the final church of the seven churches, uh, and that is Laodicea. And I'm really glad that the Lord put this church right in the middle of these two churches that we've been talking about, or that we have talked about, and that we will talk about, because uh, things can get really discouraging when you look at the things that are going on. And yet, this church, of all of them, of the seven, is the only church where the Lord didn't have some some word of rebuke to them. You know, they were doing things really well. They were doing things right, and their attitude was right. And he says, I've got nothing more to share with you, but hold fast. In other words, stay into, um, you know, walk in the truth and continue doing those things. And, you know, and this is the kind of church and the kind of heart attitude that I want to have. And I hope that uh, this fellowship of ours at Calvary Chapel of Rochester I hope that we can exemplify this kind of heart as well. In fact, I would, it would be great if, if every church in America and every church in the world exemplified this attitude of this church at Philadelphia. But we know that that's not always the case. And so we have to look at ourselves individually and also corporately and say, Lord, where do I stack up in all of this? Where do I stack up in all of this? Is my heart, is my heart cold like it was at the church of Ephesus? Or is, my, is, is everything going well? Is everything going well? And it's important because if the Lord has purchased you and I with His own blood, He deserves us. He deserves to have command over us. 
And yet in our own will, we can resist him and say, Lord, I, I don't want you. I want you out here. I will only allow you this far in my life. And you know what? The Lord is so gracious that even if you love him and you say, Lord, here's the boundary, the Lord's going to meet you there at that boundary. And yet you're going to be the one that will lose out because there'll be so much more that he wants to give to you and wants to bless you with. And you have to make that decision to tear those walls down because we can, even as Christians, we can put walls up and say, Lord, no further. And, and he will honor that. He's not going to overrule you in that sense. He didn't make us robots. The, one of the greatest ways that we know that we're loving someone is when we do something of our own volition. We do something out of our own heart. It's not something that we're forced to do. And the same thing with the Lord. You know, you know when you think of a husband and wife, you know, if a husband was uh, or a wife was supposed to love the husband and she had no choice she was kind of programmed if you will to love him how great would that love be how great would that husband feel about the love that his wife has he, he probably would think very little of it because she has no other recourse she's programmed to love him in a sense but as soon as you add in free will boy things change things change and as it is with a husband and wife so it is true with us and the lord as well. And so be encouraged in that. And uh, again, this is the only church that the Lord doesn't offer a rebuke to, the only one. And in this letter, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't describe himself with any of those descriptions that we have in chapter 1. If you remember in chapter 1, uh, it describes for us uh, Jesus in his glorified state. And it begins in verse 13 of chapter 1. And let me just read it to you. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. Notice his head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters. He has in his hand the seven stars, and out of his mouth goes forth a two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when you see these descriptors, this description, it really speaks of the judge, doesn't it? It doesn't speak of somebody who is... Um, it's, it's holiness. And holiness, as loving as that is, there's also a part of that that is very um, serious about sin. And so when we see this description of Jesus in, in uh, Revelation chapter 1 here, it's speaking of him as, as, a, as a supreme judge. But any, and you remember as we went through the, the, the different churches that in the beginning Jesus would refer back to that description and describe himself. And yet this is the only church where he doesn't do that. He departs from all those descriptors and he just says, uh, he doesn't mention anything about the flame of fire, the eyes like the flame of fire, or out of his mouth going a two-edged sword. There's, there's none of those descriptors as being a judge. And the reason for that is very probable because Jesus saw the good things in this church. He didn't see anything that needed to be corrected. And so it's very appropriate for him not to share those things that would give them any sense that he is bringing rebuke or chastisement upon them. So, in the very first uh, verse there, in verse 7, it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. And uh, when we look at this word Philadelphia, Philadelphia, you know, if we just look at the city here, it's, uh, it literally means brotherly love. We have a city in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and that is the city of brotherly love. And this name, uh, Philadelphia, was actually named after a king 
in that in that area at that time, uh, Attalus the second Philadelphus, and that was his name, and that's where the the name of the city gets its name. And remember, um, this city was the smallest of the seven cities thus far, and was located about twenty five miles southwest of, of Sardis. And compared to the other cities, it was a hub of communication and information distribution throughout that part of the world. In fact, because of its location, it was considered the gateway to the east, and it was an intersection. Uh, many roads intersected into Philadelphia, and it was actually the Roman armies, when they would travel from or to Rome, they would often travel through this city. And this city is interesting because it was actually situated on a fault line, where when there's an earthquake, it's, it's very severe. In fact, in 17 AD, one of the worst earthquakes happened in this area and totally destroyed this city and uh, because the city lied right on the fault line. In fact, many people wouldn't even go back into the city. They would stay outside of the city in fear of uh, aftershocks. And in fact, after that initial earthquake in 17 AD, uh, many years after that, there would be uh, shock waves that would come and the people became so fearful that they wouldn't go back into the city. And so, uh, so this is Philadelphia, and this is where the church was located. Let's go back to our text now. And we know that the word philo, in the Greek, we know that phileo is a, a word that is translated love in English. If you've fellowshiped with us for any length of time, you know that there have been times where I've kind of brought that distinction between phileo love and agape love, or agapeo love. And all of these, uh, in, in the Greek language, the word for love, it has many different words, where in English we have one word. We say love, but in context we know what love that is. I love my car, but I also love my wife, and I love God, and, and I love my daughter. And those, those uh, in context, you know that the love that I have for, say, you know, my car, that is very different from my love for God and certainly from my love for my wife and my daughter. So there's different shades of meaning, and the Greek brings that out. And so phileo is this idea of brotherly love. In fact, many words in our Bible that are, tra- that are translated love, if you look in the original language, you'll find that shade of meaning based upon the word that it's using. You remember in John chapter 21 when Jesus, after his resurrection, he met his disciples in Galilee. And you remember that moment that uh, Jesus met Peter after his resurrection. He met him there on the shore, and Jesus said something to him that was very interesting. He said, Simon, do you love me more than these? And remember, Jesus used the word agapeo, which is a more... Um, a more a greater love. Uh, it's one of the highest forms of love in the Greek language, and he and Jesus said, Peter, do you uh, agape me? Do you agapeo me? Do you love me with a a, a, a love that encompasses all that is self-sacrificing? And and Peter responded back, and he says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter used the word phileo, and um, and you remember through the dialogue of that. Uh, Jesus turned the word around at one point, and he asked him three different times. So finally, the third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you, do you phileo me? Do you love me in a, in a brotherly love kind of way? And Peter was so grieved because he had said that, because Jesus was really drawing out of Peter where his heart really was at. It wasn't quite there yet. I mean, Jesus loved 
or Peter loved Jesus, but it wasn't the kind of love that the Lord was hoping to, and the Lord was going to get him there, okay? But at that moment, Peter just wasn't there. And I love, the, again, that about the Lord. He's so patient with us. But this word phileo is a brotherly kind of love. It's, it's like a love you'd have for a friend, but it's very different from a kind of love that you might have for God or even for your wife. You know, if you love her and you're willing to lay your life down for her, that is more, you're getting closer to the agape love that Jesus was talking about. So phileo love, this is really where this comes from. It's a brotherly love. Notice in verse 7 that he says, Jesus, to this church, he says, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. And when we look at this word holy, most people are repelled by the word holy in our culture and unfortunately the word holy has gotten kind of a bad reputation because some people claim to be holy and yet their lives are anything but holy and so we find even pastors and preachers and television evangelists who many of them are charlatans and nothing more uh, than that and, and yet people look at that and they you know the the preacher talks about holiness but in his own life he's you know he's got several different girlfriends on the side and he's a money launderer and a thief, and a liar, and these things just ought not to be. But Jesus refers to himself as one who is holy, and and someone that is holy is somebody who is sacred. They are pure. They are morally blameless. And that is really what Jesus is talking about here. It's a word, uh, Greek word hagios, which means that very thing. It means set apart. And you know, something that is holy is set apart for a specific purpose. In the church, we are to be holy. God has purchased us with His own blood. And He says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And, and that's a tall order for us. And we're certainly not going to be perfect like Jesus is. But He, he demands and expects per, you know, holiness in our lives. And we're growing in that, aren't we? None of us are, uh, have arrived. None of us will arrive until we are home with the Lord. But until then, we know it's a process, right? And we have to be careful about that. But as long as we're uh, going forward and going upward in a sense, that, that's what the Lord desires from us. It's only when we stay still or when we start to take a nosedive that there's, there's room for caution or there's room for uh, rebuke there or to be careful. And to see if we're not careful, we can resemble the world and we can speak like the world, we can desire the things of the world, and we'll become totally ineffective for the Lord if that is the case in our life. And perhaps this world, it doesn't need more of the world. They need more of Christ. And that's why we share with them. That's why we get into the Word. That's what church is, is for, to, to get us to focus on the one who knows all things, who is all things. And this is perhaps why very few take the church seriously today. Because if we're not walking in holiness, if we're not walking in purity, if we look more like the world, then the world has every reason to look at us and say, what need do we have of you? What need do we have of you? And so I think that's a really good encouragement, uh, an exhortation for us to really walk in purity, to walk in holiness. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but you know, you read the Word of God and you read it and you say, God, do this in me. Do this in me. I want everything you want for me, Lord. And see, without the Spirit of God indwelling you, believe me, it, it is just, it, it's, it's not really possible. 
you know. But now that we have the Spirit of God in us, if you're a Christian, it becomes possible. Again, not to live a perfect life, but your life is going to be so much different. There's going to be a different dynamic about your life because God, He is altogether holy. He's separate from sinners. He's separate from the world that He's created. He, remember, He is the uncreated one. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, Paul writes, he says, For such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, was fitting for us, who is holy, he's harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And so Jesus is separate from all of these things. He alone is the uncreated one. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, Paul, speaking to his protege Timothy, Speaking of Jesus, he said, He is the blessed and the only potentate. There's only one potentate. There's not a potentate in Rome. There's one potentate, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it says, He is the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. I don't know about you, but that just blows me away to think that right now, the Lord, He dwells in unapproachable light. And, you know, we're, we're even going to need new bodies to even be in His presence. That's how intense it is. It's so wonderful. And He goes on, He says, Whom no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And certainly He's not only speaking of Jesus, but He's speaking about God the Father who is Spirit. He is Spirit. And, and so He dwells, Jesus and the Father, they dwell in unapproachable light. And notice going on in verse 7, he says, He who is true. Here's another descriptor of Jesus that he gives to this church at Philadelphia. And this word true is literally, it's exact opposite of counterfeit or fiction. It is truth in every sense of the word, in every facet of the word. So when he says that he is true, he's talking about he's true in everything. He's true in character. He's true in thought. He's true in his motives. Everything is true. There is no darkness in him at all. There is no darkness. And because of God's omniscience and his omnipotence, meaning he knows all things and he's also all-powerful, there's no reason for him to lie. There's no reason for him to not be true. Because if you are omniscient and omnipotent, you know all things and you can't change. See, you and I, we lie to each other because we are hiding the truth. The truth is we may have done something, but we don't want each other to know that. So what do we do? We lie. But see, God doesn't have to lie because He's all-powerful. He's perfect. And so He doesn't need to lie. So he can, He's always truthful in the way He acts, the way He speaks. Everything that He does is truth. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 6, it's one of my favorite verses and hopefully one of your favorites too. Jesus spoke to His disciples in fact, let me back up to verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples there in the upper room, He said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And wherever I go, you know, and the way, you know. And then I love Thomas because he said to the Lord at this point, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? And then Jesus said those fateful words, those wonderful words. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Did you hear that? That means that there's no other way to get to heaven 
other than through Christ, because Jesus' name is Jehovah Shua, which means God's salvation. And if that is the truth, then that is the only salvation. Uh, we have to believe in Him and what He did and who He is in order to gain entrance into heaven. I mean, if God who created all things said, this is my son, hear him, I'd better be listening and I'd better be submitting my heart to him. And why wouldn't I want to submit to him? I mean, think about all that he has done. I mean, God is so wonderful. Jesus gave himself. He laid his life down willingly for us. And if he did that and to secure me into heaven for eternity, okay, this is not just some, you know, a couple of weeks in glory. No, this is for eternity, folks. There's a difference between heaven and hell, and there are many that are going to hell, and there are many that will go to hell, unfortunately, but that's not God's plan. He says He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He delights in to know that you are going to be with Him, but that is a decision that you and I have to make. So Jesus said to him, I am the only way, I am the only truth. That's literally what it means in the Greek here, and I am the only life. There's no other way, there's no other truth, there's no other life. Gandhi didn't give me the truth. Uh, Muhammad didn't give me the truth. Buddha did not give me the truth. David Koresh didn't give me the truth. Uh, the Zoroastrians didn't give me the truth. There's no one who's given me the truth except Jesus Christ because He is the truth. He is the truth. And I love the truth. Don't you love the truth? I love the truth. I love the truth of the Word of God. I love that Jesus is the truth. What did John say in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5? He said, This is the message we have heard from Him, speaking of Christ, and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. There is no darkness in Him at all. And if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But Jesus is the truth and He wants us to walk with Him. Will you walk with Him today? Will you walk with Him for the rest of your life? I made that decision when I was 24 years old and I never regret going, never regret that decision. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me is that decision, that moment where God was uh, speaking to my heart and I knew it. And then I decided, you know what, Lord, I'm not going to resist you anymore. I've been doing my own thing. I've been going my own way for far too long. And 24 years is not a long time either. But by 24, you kind of know the things in the world. You know the lust of the flesh very well. You're a, you're a master at it by 24, and so was I. And yet God says, I want, I'm calling you. I'm calling you. God is calling you too. Will you give your life to Him? But notice what He says at the end of verse 7 here. He also says, not only is He holy, not only is He true, but He who has the key of David, He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. A key, it speaks of admittance into something that lies beyond, doesn't it? You know, when you're invited into someone's home, uh, back at this time, hospitality was something that was greatly valued. You could expect your host not only to wash your feet, but to feed you, to give you rest, to give you refreshment, certainly water and fellowship. That was part of the culture of that day. Fellowship was extremely important. And you need a key, don't you, to get into a door that is locked. And um, I want to share something with you, uh, because as we look at this, uh, this phrase here in this uh, verse 7 here at the bottom, when Jesus says, I am he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no man opens. Now remember when this was written, this letter 
was written around 95, 96 A.D., okay? But way back in the book of Isaiah, some 700 years before Jesus would be incarnate through the Virgin Mary and come into the world, uh, it says uh, in Isaiah chapter 22, uh, verse 20, and this passage is really speaking of a king back at that time in the land of, uh, in the land of Judah in Israel, and the king at that time was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king, and his second in command was a man named Shebna. And Shebna, at some point, and the Bible doesn't really tell us what happened, but he did something that really caused his office to be, for him to be demoted in a sense. And there was another man named Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and he was going to be steward in Shebna's place. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 20, the Lord talks about this, um, this uh, change of the guard, in a sense, uh, under the reign of Hezekiah. And this was right before Israel went into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. But notice what it says in verse 20 of Isaiah 22. It says, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe. Now he's speaking, God is speaking to Shebna at this time. He's saying, you're going to be replaced. And notice, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And notice, verse 22, here it is. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one will open. And what it's speaking of there is this Eliakim, uh, of the son of Hilkiah, he would actually be steward over the king Hezekiah's, over his treasury in a sense. And whenever Hezekiah, or I'm sorry, whenever Eliakim would open that door to the treasury, only he had the key to get in to that treasury. And he had the key also to shut it and to lock it. And so all of the riches of Hezekiah and his kingdom were at this man's disposal. And so when Jesus here now in uh, Revelation is speaking this very same thing, it ought to bring us back to this very passage in Isaiah because uh, Eliakim was the steward of the riches of the kingdom at that time of Hezekiah. And now Jesus is saying, I am the one who holds the key of David. In other words, I am the one who holds the riches to eternity, to the heavenly realm, to heaven itself. I hold the riches to those things. And so that's what is meant. And that's why Jesus mentioned this here in chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus said of himself, I am he who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no man opens. You know, the Lord has the keys. He has the keys. And throughout Scripture, you see the Lord speaking of keys. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, the Lord has the keys to the kingdom and He gives them to whomever He will. If you recall in Matthew chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 18, uh, Jesus speaking to Peter here, and he says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, on this declaration that you made, Peter, that, um, that I am the, the Son of the living God, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon that rock, upon that truth, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
<laughs> and so the Lord, in a sense, is giving to Peter uh, the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, so to speak. And, and the Lord has those keys, and He gives them to whomever He will. And He also has keys to the death, to death and hell. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, we saw this earlier. Jesus referred to Himself. He said, I am He who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. No one goes to that place except the Lord opens that door and they are, they are put there of their own volition because of the choices that they have made. God doesn't send anyone to hell. We make that decision way ahead of time. We make that decision by the way we live our life, by the actions, by the things that come out of our mouth. If we do not repent and turn to the Lord and, and, and receive Christ into our heart and we are born again, we will go to that place. It is that simple. We choose whether we go there or not. And so Jesus has the keys to that. He also has the key to the bottomless pit. It says in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and I'll just read the first verse. Then the fifth angel sounded, which we're going to get to this portion of Scripture here in, a, in, in probably a couple months, actually. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star or an angel fall from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And we'll talk more about that later. But the, the idea is that the Lord holds the keys. And he's got a key. And he's got a key to your heart. Are you going to allow him to open that? Are you going to open yourself up to Him? Again, a key is something that where you gain entrance into something. And Jesus has the keys to heaven and hell and all authority in between, including on earth. What does it say in Psalm 24? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all they that dwell therein. He it is His. It belongs to Him. Notice in verse 8 now, He says, I know your works. He says to the church at Philadelphia, I know the toil that you've been going through. I know the work that you've been doing. And I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And again, when the Lord sets before this church an open door, no one can shut it. It, it is an invitation, isn't it? It's a welcoming into something and it's assured and no one can take it away. Nobody can steal it. Do you see that? I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Believe me, if God opens a door, there is nothing on earth, no one on earth, no one in the universe that can shut that door. And alternately, when He shuts a door, there is no one that can open it. No amount of money, no amount of intrigue, no amount of, of Russian collusion. There's nothing that can stop that from happening. When God closes a door, no one can open it. And when He opens it, there is nothing and no one that can open it up. And they can't steal it. They can't take it. I love what it says in Matthew chapter 6. This is such a wonderful passage. Beginning in verse 19, Jesus speaking to His disciples, He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust they destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there where your heart, your heart be also. And to me, that's an encouraging thing because as, as I have collected things in my life and have material possessions, you know, one thing that is true, they always break down, eventually they rust, eventually they lose their luster. I can wax, I can do all these things, I can take care of it, but eventually it's starting to break down. And my, my, even my desire to take care of those things begins to lessen sometimes. And, and just by nature, it decays. It decays. All I have to do is nothing and, and decay happens. 
And yet God is saying, where is your treasure? If your treasure is on the things of the earth, you know, people can break in and steal those things. These things are going to rust. But the things that you allow the Lord to do in you and through you, those are the things that are going to last for eternity. And those are the things, folks, that we are going to receive reward from. You can read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, and it speaks about that, about this, uh, the rewards that we as believers are going to receive. And, and, and these are things that God even does in us. He does them in us, and then we get rewarded for it. I mean, how awesome is that? I mean, that is a great thing. So when God opens up something and He wants it to be open or closed, no one is going to change it. No one. Go with me to John chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 22. Actually, let me read to you, just beginning for the sake of time, Start beginning in verse 27. Jesus is speaking that about His sheep, you and I, and that there's nothing that can take us from His hand. There's nothing that can take us out of His hand. And that's an encouraging thought. I don't know how you feel, but to me I'm very encouraged with that thought. Notice what He says in verse 27. He says, Jesus says, My sheep, they hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. Just as, a, you know, David was a great shepherd and he would speak to his sheep. And I've seen this myself in, in Bethlehem uh, many years ago and uh, even recently. I mean, the, 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 the shepherd uh, would speak. He would just mention, he even maybe just make a noise with his mouth and the sheep know that voice. They know that sound and they know what it means. And they follow the shepherd. It's wonderful to see. And yet we are God's sheep, right? He says, My sheep hear my voice, verse 27, and I know them and they follow me. And notice, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Never perish. Now, some of us may die physically, but we'll never perish spiritually. We're never going to be in that place of eternal torment. But those who hear Him, He gives eternal life and they shall never perish because we'll be with Him. And neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Notice that. No one no one, because when God opens, He opens and no one can shut. And when He shuts, nobody can open it again. And so it is with us as well. You know, when He calls us, it is a, it is a promise that He gives. He does not take it away. You can't lose your salvation once you receive it. Once you're a child of God, you are always a child of God. And so that is something that is uh, significant. But notice, let me read it again. John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Did you hear that? That's a glorious promise. And I love the fact that once you're in Christ, there's no one that can take you out of His hand. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 34, speaking of this idea of the Lord, and it's really about uh, faithfulness. You know, I've set before you an open door. An open door is an opportunity. It's, it's, um, certainly it's an invitation, but it also speaks of an opportunity and opportunities. Notice what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 34, 35, I'm sorry. He says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, Jesus speaking to His disciples. 
And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, notice, he knocks, and he's knocking because there's a door. So he's knocking on the door, that when he knocks, they may open to him, what? Immediately. Not next week, not delayed, but immediately. And he says in verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, shall find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also, and he's speaking to us too, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then Peter said, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And Jesus said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will make him ruler over all that he has. And again, this speaks of stewardship, right? Of responsibilities, of opportunities to minister. And when Jesus opens a door, that's also what it is. There's an opportunity here. And Jesus goes on here, verse 44. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delayed is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come in a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour when he is not aware. And I will cut him in two, and point him, appoint him his portion with the unbelievers, and that servant who knew his master's will, and did not prepare himself, or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes." But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. And here it is. For every one to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to him who has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And so this speaks of opportunities, opportunities that we have. And you know, when we look at this verse, when Jesus uh, says, bear with me here, in verse 8, he says, I will set before you an open door. You know, if we compare or contrast this with what we're going to talk about next week, and let me just give you a, a, a brief sneak preview of that. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea, a church that is, wasn't doing well at all. They were lukewarm. Instead of being hot or cold, they were lukewarm. And Jesus said to them, he says in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten, therefore be zealous, uh, and repent. And behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And the, the question you have to ask yourself is, is why does the Lord have to knock? If he, if, if, and Jesus, remember, has given this church of Philadelphia an open door. The door is open for them. But yet when Jesus comes to the church at Laodicea, he's got a knock He's got a knock on the door, and the door should have been wide open for the Lord, too, to come into that church and to breathe life into it and to give it every opportunity that it needed to grow. And, you know, some people in churches are like that. You know, they have, they have uh, programs and they have everything, uh, all the ministries nicely done, and everything is a, a well-oiled machine. And there's nothing wrong with uh, being uh, ready and being prepared and doing well. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that is all you have you know, there's something wrong. And so Jesus opens the door. And, you know, are you open to the Lord? 
Are you, is your heart of your, the door of your heart, is it open? That, that's a question you have to ask. Or is, am I just closed off? Is, is my heart just closed off? And you know, the, this age that we live in, it has a way of really making us jaded. It has a way of making us um, numb. It has a way of desensitizing us. In, in all of our movies and entertainment, no, nobody, unless there's like 45 minutes of violence, you know, most people are like, oh, hum. <laughs> you know, uh, in, in order for any movie creator to create uh, a sensation and for a movie to be a big hit, there's got to be, it's, it's got to be special effects and action from beginning to end or people just walk out, you know, and we become desensitized. But the thing is, is are you open to the Lord amongst all that callousness that is being brought upon us? Are you willing to open the door of your heart, you know, and have you... Uh, what doors even has the Lord opened to you, as far as opportunities even? You know, when He gives you an opportunity, uh, have you walked through that opportunity? Have you taken advantage of that opportunity? Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 said this in verse 9, he says, For a great, or, or let me back up to verse 8, he says, But I will tarry, or I will, I will wait in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so Paul is speaking about opportunity, you know, and there are many opportunities that I've had in my life that I wish I could go back and change. Things that I know that God had given me opportunity, but you know what? There are some opportunities, isn't this true of life? There are some things that you'll get, to, you'll get an opportunity to do again. The opportunity will present itself. Uh, the, the opportunity... And, and other times, sometimes an opportunity may only come once in a lifetime. Once in a lifetime. And so we need to be careful about that. And, and, and to, you know, thank God that we have 365 days in a year, and most of us had many years. And so that, that, that's really good odds for us to get our heart right with the Lord and to make the most important decision, right? But even opportunities that we have in daily life, are you taking advantage of those things as a Christian? Do you know when they come? Or is it just all about you? Is it all about what we want and my desire, what I want to accomplish today? You know, a good thing to do is to start the day off and say, Lord, what is your will for my life today? Whether I understand it, whether I like it or not, Lord, you guide and protect, and, or guide and direct, I'm sorry, my day. That is what a servant does. That is what a servant does. A servant says to his master, what would you have me to do? And when I create my own job and I say this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, then that's all I've got. But when I, if I'm a servant of God, I've got to bring my heart before Him and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? I am yours. And so notice in verse 8 he says, you have a little strength. You have a little strength. See, God doesn't need a big church. He doesn't need somebody who has a lot of faith. There are very few people on the earth that have great faith. <laughs> I don't know how much faith I have, but I would imagine it's very small. I don't really know. Only God knows the measure of my faith and yours as well. But God doesn't need a big church. He says, you have a little strength. You have just what you have is good, but it's very little. And God can do a lot with very little. In fact, this church was a small church, but they had a big God 
they had a big God and he can do big and great things. You know, is your God small or is he big? You know, when we pray, do you pray the small prayers like, and there's nothing wrong with small prayers, okay? God can handle the small prayers, the intermediate prayers, the things that seem really impossible. But let me suggest to you that if we keep our prayer to the realm of the things that we can manage, our prayer and our God is small. And again, nothing wrong with praying for those things, but have you prayed the impossible? Have you prayed the impossible? Don't be afraid to pray the impossible. There have been times in my life where beyond my understanding, I just said, Lord, I need your help. I can't do this. And the Lord provided in ways that I couldn't even imagine. I didn't even have the opportunity to go tell somebody. You know, it wasn't like I, I, I broadcasted a need and then there were three people came and said, oh, the Lord put this on my heart to give this to you. No, this was stuff that I prayed quietly and the Lord did things. And, and many of you have experienced this yourself. But do we have a big God? Are, are we content with just praying our, these small things? And again, Continue to pray for those, those things because they're real, they're genuine. But don't be afraid, don't be um, intimidated by the impossible. And that really determines how big our God really is. When we just pray in, in this area where we're nice and comfortable, God can meet you there, and He does. But don't be afraid to pray the impossible. Pray the big things and see what He does. Because as soon as you start doing that, you're, you're, you're basically getting out of the way completely because some things we can pray for and you know we might even have the ability to make change ourselves. But when you pray the impossible and you say, Lord, I have no resources here. I cannot do this. I can't change this person. I, can't, I don't even know how to get out of the situation that I'm in. Well, that's a great time to pray because the impossible lies at your feet. Do I pray the impossible things or do I have a small God? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, actually Hebrews 11 verse 6, let me just read it to you. The writer of Hebrews says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. It's impossible to please God without faith. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, that He is God, in other words, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Though He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. I want to diligently seek the Lord, don't you? Because I want to be... I, I want to um, I, w- I want God's rewards, whatever He has. You know, there are certain things that people like in the world, and and there's nothing wrong with that per se. But the thing I really want are the things that nobody can take away from me. The things that I really desire are the things that really bring peace to my heart and to my family. The things that I really want are are dividends in the bank in heaven, not so much the the things that I have here. And not not that those things are bad. Do you understand? But but, but, but it's, 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 a, it's an idea of perspective and where my hope and my treasure really lies. Everything that I own, everything that's in my life is going to burn one day. And, and I'm not going to have any of it. So why would I spend my whole life just simply amassing things for me? <laughs> I better be building treasure in heaven as well. Again, there's nothing wrong with things as long as they don't own you. If you own them, praise the Lord. But when they begin to own you and they start uh, dictating the way you think and how you act and what you do to protect them, then you've got some, some thinking to do, right? Jesus said in Matthew 17, He says, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. He also said in Matthew 21, verse 21, He says, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have 
faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Now, Jesus isn't uh, obviously saying for us to be going around throwing mountains in the water, okay? But he's saying if you just had a little bit and you were doing things according to the will of God and you're asking and believing and praying in faith in the will of God, <laughs> then God can do the impossible. If it's necessary for a mountain to be removed and, and thrown into the ocean, then God can and will do that if that's what's needed to get you from where you are to where you need to be. He did that with the children of Israel, didn't he? As the Egyptians were chasing them out of Egypt, remember that night? And there they are, hemmed in the desert, and before them was the, de the Red Sea, and behind them was chariots of, 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 of Pharaoh coming. And they were surrounded, and they had the water right in front of them. Believe me, this is a prayer that is significant because there was no way out. The, the, the children of Israel, they had nothing to do. They were going to be slaughtered by these um, chariots and these armed men. But what did, what did God tell Moses to do? He just said, Moses, don't freak out. Stop whining. Stand here and put out that rod and I'll do the rest. And he was simply, he simply obeyed God. And you know what happened. And there's evidence of this today. Uh, there's a lot of evidence. I won't go into that now, but the, the, the Red Sea parted. There was water on both sides, and those people, over two and a half million people, went across on dry land. And then you remember what happened. Pharaoh and his armies came afterward, and God closed the water and consumed and destroyed Pharaoh and his army. And that's what happened. That's an impossibility. That's the kind of thing that you pray about. <laughs> and there, I mean, don't be afraid to pray the impossible is what I'm saying. Again, okay to pray for small things, but don't be afraid to pray for the big things. How big is your God? How big is He? I serve a big God. Do you serve a big God? I don't want to serve a small God. Because if He's a small God, He's not worth serving at all but because we serve the one who spoke all things into existence. The very ground, the very chair that you're sitting in right now was something that God formed from the elements of the earth. And man just took those materials and formed it into a chair. But yet all those materials belonged to Him. He's the one who created it. Notice in verse 8 he says, And you've also, not only do you have a little strength, but you've kept my word. You've guarded it. You've watched it. You've observed it. And notice also you have not denied my name. You know, you think about all the things that God has done for us. And for me to deny his name is like a slap in the face, isn't it? But he says, And you have not denied my name. You know, I love that song by Chris Tomlin. It says, How can I keep from singing your praise? It was, it's the song that we have on our radio program at 6.30 uh, weekdays here. And it's one of my favorite songs because how can I keep from singing your praise, Lord? How can I keep from singing when you have done all that you've done? Even if I had nothing on this earth, but I had the assurance of salvation, that would be enough because my life, your life, 80, 90 years, maybe 100 years if you're really doing well, but that's it. And then eternity, folks. That 80, 90, 100 years is going to seem like a, it's going to be like a, a vapor compared to eternity. So how can I keep from singing your praise, Lord? How can I keep from singing your praise? In Matthew 10, verse 32, notice, you've not denied my name. Jesus spoke to his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 32. He says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, 
Him I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so we see that we ought not to deny the Lord, ought not to deny them. And that ought to affect our evangelization, our evangelism and reaching out to others. You know, are you afraid to speak to somebody? Now, granted, in the world we live in now, you know, very few people want to talk about that subject. But it's the one thing that we have to be willing to talk about. And when you have an open door, when somebody is there telling you and pouring their heart out to you how they're scared about the coronavirus, or they're scared about losing their job, or scared about losing their life, that is an open door, folks. Do you see? That's an opportunity that God has allowed for us to walk in that door, that opportunity and don't deny the Lord. Speak the truth in love. We have to tell them the truth. And the truth sometimes hurts, right? Because the truth is the, the, the truth is, is that I'm a sinner. I need salvation. I need someone to save me. And Jesus is the only one who could. God in the flesh. He died in my place. I love what, what Paul said, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 1. What did he say in verse 16? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. I need to be careful to not deny his name. And Jesus is saying to this church at Philadelphia, you have a little strength and you have not denied my name. Jesus's name is so important. Jesus is so important, his name. He goes, because, verse 10, you have kept my command to persevere. Oh, I skipped a verse. I'm sorry. Let's go back to verse 9. He says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Uh, Just as we saw in the church of Smyrna in that letter in chapter 2, the same is true here. There was a group of Jewish people who lived in that town of Philadelphia, and they claimed to know God, but they were actually opposed to Him. And they were actually one of the main instigators, the main persecutors of the church at that time. And instead of listening to God, who they claimed to know, they were actually giving in to the devil. And that's really what it is. And so Jesus calls it the synagogue of Satan. You know, it should have been the synagogue of Philadelphia where Jewish people believed and and they believed in the Lord and they embraced the Christians because all of the scriptures were about Jesus. Didn't Jesus say that? In the volume of the book, it is written of me. In the volume of the book, the whole Bible, it's written about him. You look on it and it, it all speaks of him. It's all about his plan of redemption. It's all there for us. But they were the synagogue of Satan and they, they didn't have the faith in their heart uh, in God at all. They were more interested in the rules and the regulations. Now, does that make us angry with the Jews? And you No, know, we shouldn't be angry with them. They, 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 just like Gentiles, need a Savior. They need salvation through Christ. They need it just as we need it. So there is no difference. But Jesus spoke to them that they were of the synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, remember at this time the Roman Empire was uh, in place 
And not only was this speaking locally uh, about the spread of the Roman Empire and the persecution that they would endure as a result, they would certainly, Jesus said, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth. Locally, it could be speaking of the Romans and their influence and their persecution, but I also believe that it may be referring to true Christians being removed before the great tribulation period, which we know is yet to come upon the earth. Now, uh, we've been talking about these churches locally. We really haven't been talking about them dispensationally, meaning that each of these churches really describes an, an era of time in the church ages, in the church age, I'm sorry. And, um, uh, and so uh, that last church, Church of Laodicea, that is the last church that describes the church, that, which we're going to get to next week. It describes the church before the return of Christ for the rapture of the church. It describes, and it's not something that's good either, uh, meaning the church at that time was completely lukewarm, and it speaks of that time. And so he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And, you know, if you think about the believers in Philadelphia, you know, their heart was right, and God is going to rapture them. They are going to be taken up, even though they are dead in the ground right now. They are in glory, but their physical bodies are going to be resurrected at the coming of Jesus at the rapture. Not his second coming, but his coming for the church in the rapture. And I believe that that could be what this means as well about this trial, that God will keep them from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. That kind of changes things, doesn't it? Because uh, now it's speaking about some tribulation that's going to affect the entire world. And so, um, and he's going to deliver them. And incidentally, let me just throw this in here really quick. You'll notice in chapter 4 of Revelation, the very first verse, what does it say? We're going we're gonna to get to this in uh, two weeks from now, but it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first trump, or the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this, after the church age is removed, or after the church age is over, and I love how he spoke to the, the church at Philadelphia, and he says, I've given you an open door, a door that is open. And so those who, um, the door is wide open for these folks. And so they are going, there's no doubt that these, this church, these people in this church are going to be taken at the rapture. And that's the, 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 the same thing we want to, um, we want to exemplify that as well. It doesn't mean that the other churches aren't going to go as well, but notice the door is wide open for them. And, um, and so you can just take with that however you want to take it, but I think that's very interesting. He says, verse 11, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no man may take your crown. The idea is that when Jesus does return, it is going to be quick. Uh, we've been waiting. The church has been waiting for the Lord to return at the, for the rapture of the church. And certainly they've been um, looking forward to uh, His second coming. Uh, which is going to usher in his uh, thousand-year reign, which the Bible speaks very clear of. And we've been waiting for that for a long time. But remember, the one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. But for us, it seems like an eternity, but we know that he is coming. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast, or hold to those things that you have, that no man may take your crown. And, and we will receive rewards. And that's what that crown speaks of. And so... In verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name 
of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Now, this is interesting because as we look at um, uh, this, uh, we're going to see three things. Uh, God is going to uh, make them the pillar, and he's going to write on, on them, and we'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself here. So, a pillar in ancient times was something, uh, it was a symbol of strength and security. And in fact, uh, being in Israel recently, we visited a town called Beth Shan, which is um, one of the towns there along the Jordan Valley. And all that's left there today are pillars because everything else had broken down through a series of earthquakes uh, over the years. And all that's standing is a pillar, but a pillar speaks of strength and security and um, and oftentimes that's all that's left after everything else has crumbled. And so, and then famous people in those days they would often have their names inscribed on pillars in different buildings, just as a way to um, uh, to remember them by. And while it is an honor, G- Jesus says to him who overcomes, he will be a pillar. Not that he will have his name written on a pillar, but he, that he will be a pillar for those who overcome in the temple. And again, that's significant because this town, Philadelphia, was ravaged by earthquakes and aftershocks, and it was a disaster. But going on, notice what he says. He says, I'll write on him the name of my God. In verse 12, we're going to see three different stamps of ownership that God gives. First is the name of God the Father is going to be written on him. Second, the name of the new Jerusalem is going to be written on him. And also, thirdly, the new name of Jesus. Now, Jesus has a name in glory that only he knows, and yet when we are there with him, he is going to write that name on, on the believers. And, and a, a name like that, it's a, it's a symbol of ownership. And even though Jesus is equal with God the Father, Jehovah, he is submitted to God in all things. Notice, I will write on him the name of my God. Now, Jesus is God, but he's also speaking to his Father as God. And writing a name or a symbol on a person, again, it speaks of ownership. And sometimes servants back in those days uh, would receive a mark. They would be marked by their owner, uh, stating ownership. And even today, uh, and sorry to bring this into the same um, context, but even uh, owners of cattle and livestock, they have branding. They brand their animals, and even some of them today are implanting chips inside of their animals. They have GPS locators where they can actually find their animals if they go astray. And so, but there is a uh, an identifying mark on these individuals, and certainly um, on on livestock. Even we see that today. But notice, Jesus says, "I will write on him the name of my God." I will write my name of my God on, on him. And God has that right to write upon us. by Just by the act of creation itself, God has that right. And perhaps this is why God forbid the children of Israel, way back in the book of Leviticus, he forbid them to put tattoos and marks on their bodies. Because when you think of a name, when you think of a mark that's placed on you, again, it speaks of ownership and uh, God wants to own you. He wants to take uh, control over you. You know, ultimately, when you're with Him, He's going to place a mark on you. Three marks, actually, it seems, anyway. In Leviticus chapter 19, uh, God says to Moses, to the children of Israel, You should not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. And, 
you know, if you have a tattoo today, don't don't think that you're automatically going to be, you know, separated from God. That's not the case. Your your faith is what's important. I know believers uh, who have given themselves to the Lord, and um, before they did, they were bikers, and some of them have tattoos all over the place. But God has forgiven them. Uh, but my point in the whole thing is, is what mark do you have on you? You know, sometimes you know young people go to get a tattoo just because it, it looks cool. But it's a mark. It's a mark of the world upon them. And God told the children of Israel not to put any marks on themselves. And why did he do that? Because he knew that he ultimately wanted to have his mark on you. A mark means something. It means ownership. That's why in the end, we know in the book of Revelation, it talks about the great tribulation period right prior to when everything, uh, when we're actually in the midst of everything, uh, that the, the false prophet uh, who is going to be serving the Antichrist he is going to place a mark on people, and they will have to have a mark on their bodies in their right hand or in their forehead in order to buy or sell or to eat. They're going to need this mark, and it's going to be a mark of ownership. Now, you think about it today. You know, I mean, um, it, it's not a far stretch to think if, 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 if a government, if a government came and said to its people, uh, you cannot eat you cannot buy anything. You need to place this mark on you, and it's going to be a mark that's going to, it's an allegiance that you're going to make to us, to the government, or to a leader. And without that mark, you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't do anything. You can't go to Walmart, you can't, you can't go to Wegmans, you can't go to Publix. You know how many people are going to stand up in line to get that mark? And not only that, I'm sure it'll have a GPS in it where they can track your, your financial transactions. It'll be able to track where you are physically. They'll see your spending habits. They're doing that already through the phones, right? And so um, it doesn't take a, it's not a far stretch of the imagination to see that these things are coming, and they are indeed coming. They're already in place, and we'll be looking at that as we get later on in the book of Revelation. But it is interesting that all of these things are already in place. All it takes is for uh, a situation to come about where people are desperate enough. Uh, in fact, I know that the, um, um, there's portions of our government the radical left, even when we were going through this coronavirus, they, they were trying hard to press a digital currency. And this is part of it. This is part of the whole thing that we're talking about because it, ultimately it's going to fall into the hands of this man of lawlessness. And, and so, but anyway, uh, let's get into, but notice in verse 12, he says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Now, whether this is a uh, the name New Jerusalem, or whether it's a, a name that's synonymous with the New Jerusalem, we really don't know. But that New Jerusalem is a real place that is going to be created after the new heavens and the new earth are created, after this current heavens and earth are dissolved. You can read about it. We don't have time. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 21 in the first eight verses. But he also says... Um, that I will write on him my new name. So Jesus, it, it, his name, and that's why when we began this morning, we sang that song, Your Name, because Jesus' name is synonymous with perfection. His name means everything. His name has a character and a reputation behind that name. You know, when, if I mention certain names to you, you're going to have an idea whether this person is really evil or whether they're really good. When I mention names like Adolf Hitler, when I mention names like Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein, or I mention a name like Billy Graham or Chuck Smith or John the Apostle or even Jesus, these are 
good men, and certainly Jesus is Almighty God, and He has the best name. And Jesus says, and I will write on Him my new name, a name that we don't know right now, but He's going to place His name upon you as a stamp of ownership. You know, and Jesus has purchased us. There's so many scriptures that refer to that. You know, I love one in Isaiah chapter 49, and we're almost finished here. In Isaiah chapter 49, in verse 16 it says, See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Jesus speaking of uh, to the Jews. But notice, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Inscribing something means writing into, right? And, and the very name of God, He's going to place that upon you. And it, again, it speaks of ownership. And finally, He ends the, the letter here and He says, He who has an ear. Uh, does everybody have ears? you got two of them. The Lord gave me two ears and one mouth, and that means that I should probably listen twice as much as I speak. <laughs> and so he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we all have ears, but are we hearing? Are we listening? That is the question that only you can answer. You have an ear, but are you hearing? Are you listening to what the Bible is saying about who Jesus is and about his great plan for each one of us. You know, and as he's writing to this church, again, the church at Philadelphia, what a wonderful church. And I pray that as time goes on, and even right now, I pray, Lord, make me part of that church. I want to be part of that church. I want to be a church that's faithful. I want to be a part of a church that's faithful. I don't want to be a part of a church that is dead and that everything it does is dead, where its worship is dead, where its teaching is dead, where everything is dead. I want to be a part of a church that's alive. And again, that's not the Lord's fault, is it? It's not His fault when a church is dead. It just means they've gotten their eyes off of Him. You know, there's a song that we sing, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Um, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look firm in His, um, look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And so when we get our eyes off of Him, that's what happens. You know, we, we lose our perspective, we lose our zeal, we lose our hunger, our desire, and, and it's a scary thing, isn't it? And so how important then is it for us to continue to abide in the Lord? How important is it for us to gather together? Certainly we're gathering together now, we're just doing it over a, an Ethernet connection, but it's good for us when we're together. It's good for us to be together, whether like this or physically, and I'm looking forward to that. But are you hearing? Hear what the Word of God says and be a doer of the Word. Don't just listen to it and say, well, this is great for somebody else. No, this has got to be great for me. I've got to apply it to my own life and be honest with myself. Would you be honest with yourself today and say, Lord, if there's anything about this, anything about my life, that I'm just kind of going through the motions. I, 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 don't, I don't feel really excited about you anymore. My time in your Word is dead. My prayer life is virtually non-existent. I don't really care about other people. I'm just looking forward to you to return for me, but I have no desire. You know, if that describes you, then God wants to meet you. He wants to touch your heart. Will you take that opportunity, that open door, so to speak? Because believe me, there is an open door for you and I. The Lord opens that door for us, that opportunity to come to Him. Will you come to the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would open our eyes 
Lord, we know there's a lot of things that we don't understand. And Lord, there are things that we're just not qualified to understand. <laughs> but we know that you understand all things. You're omniscient. You know all things. Lord, help us to rest in your grace, to rest in your power, Lord. Not to think that we have got to do all of this, Lord. We, you work in us. And you're working in us, Lord. Help us not to be discouraged regardless of where we're at, regardless of if we're feeling dried up and, and, and like we're doing nothing. Maybe we don't even know you yet. Maybe we've been talking and we, we, we talk the talk, but there's no walk at all. Lord, if that is true of us, change us, Lord. Only you can do this. I cannot. We cannot change ourselves. This is something that you have to do from the outside in. So would you please do that work in us today, Lord? And I pray for anyone here, Lord, um, who may be tuning in for the first time or, um, or maybe has sat here in the church for years. And Lord, maybe now is the time to put away all those things and to finally surrender. Lord, I pray that today would be that day, God, and that you'd meet that, those individuals. And thank you for your love for us, Lord. Thank you for the encouragement that you've given to this church. Lord, it's an encouragement to us. May we draw near to you, Lord. Have your way with us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.